we have a, a little bit of a, a joke about these, Nick, because I like the old Second World War escape and evasion silk. You know the one silk? Yeah, stars? yeah, yeah. You just sew them into there. That's it. So we, we've mm. got some made for the company. Brilliant. Of Norfolk, so they're good for the briefings. Excellent. What a good idea. Uh, Ian, you couldn't call that side, could you? Yep. So I can show you where we're going. Yep. So excuse the finger, but we're here. So that's the main channel okay, going out to yeah. sea up there. And, and the pink being? In the marsh. Right. <coughs> so it's the same colours as they would have had in the original Second World War scarves. Um, so we're going to follow a, a lesser travelled creek all the way up here. We've got to get under a bridge here, which we're probably not going to do. So we'll just have breakfast uh, before the bridge. And wait. And wait. Tide will go down and then we continue. And then we're going to go to this spot here, just because it's one of the quietest, remotest spots on the Norfolk coast. Beautiful. Well, hello again, folks, and welcome to Around the World in 80 Cigars, the podcast with me, your host, Nick Hammond. Hope you're all keeping well and enjoying the pod so far. Have something of a little change of pace for you this morning. That little snippet of uh, audio you had there just gives you a flavour of what. Uh, of what's to come. I'm going to be talking to a very interesting gentleman uh, today. This week's guest is Henry Chamberlain of the Coastal Exploration Company. Now Henry is a remarkable man. He spent most of his life leaping out of boats, aeroplanes, off mountains, doing the sort of thing that we only see or think about in movies. Um, and yet a few years ago he's launched a new business which is very different. Uh, bring him it helps to bring him back down to earth and also uh, bring some peace and joy to his customers. Now, we're talking great depths about the business in the pod, so uh, we, won't, uh, we won't give away too much, but I just wanted to give you that little tiny fraction of audio and sense of excitement I felt as we stood on the docks at Wells Next to the Sea, uh, stood on the quay rather, and uh, we looked over those little silk maps and... Um, Henry told me where we were going to be heading off that morning in the pre-dawn light. So without further ado, I will introduce you to today's guest. And he's actually not in Norfolk. And it won't surprise you by the time you finish this pod to hear. He's actually in Kabul in Afghanistan. Henry, I think it's probably morning. I'm not sure whether it's afternoon, actually. Whatever time it is, a very good hello. To Henry Chamberlain. Hello Nick, great to hear from you again and it's quarter past three and I'm in Kabul, Afghanistan at the moment while my boats are tied up on the pontoon in Norfolk. <laughs> yes that, and that's, oh, you must yearn to see them again but you've got people down there keeping an eye on stuff presumably. Yes that's it, I mean with the current crisis Nick um, we, everything's ceased in the harbour in Wales along the coast but the boats are safe, uh, they're being checked on regularly, so we're just gearing up for when the season starts again. And hopefully we'll be um, going by mid-late summer, if all goes well. Okay, well let's talk, about, um, let's talk about that, and then we'll come to why I'm calling you in Kabul today. Let's talk about uh, the, the um, Coastal Exploration Company. Can you explain a bit to our listeners uh, about what it is and how it came to be? Yes, Nick. Well... I've been working for many years, first of all in the Royal Marines and then as a humanitarian security advisor all over the world for about 20 years. And I'm from Norfolk. My children are in Norfolk. My family's there. And I just wanted to, to come back to the UK and try and focus and set up a life there. But I'm quite an adventurous spirit, so I needed something to do that would, would keep me there. Um, and I'm in love with the coast, Nick, the North Norfolk coast. Um, the wildness of the North Sea hitting the sandbanks is sort of quite dangerous and you've got to be careful. So I thought a boating, boating operation, which ties into my Marines experience, that allows you to access what I think is one of the most beautiful parts of the world. And it also ties into the history of Norfolk. And we just use the original North Norfolk fishing boats, which there aren't so many of, but they're beautiful and um, they're made of wood. Okay. And so people can hire your boats can they and go out with your you or your other skippers to get an experience of what it's like to be on that beautiful part of the coastline yes exactly we we've got three boats nick so the larger one is a 30 foot whelk boat which is ideal for going to sea so we'll take you along the coast we'll go offshore um sort of proper sea sailing in that one um either a day or a few days 
And then all the adventures are geared up to the type of boat. So that's more for the sea work. We've got a 20-foot crab boat, so that'll go out to the sea, but also through the creeks. So we try and take some of the less travelled routes. So rather than staying in the, the harbours and the stays where all the boats are, we'll go into the places in between that are really hard to get to. Um, and some of the most beautiful parts and the wilderness you're talking about when you first opened this podcast snake as an example and um, there's nobody else that will go there um, privately commercially so we take people to the remote most beautiful inaccessible parts which i think are the most beautiful so that's often the crab boat and then we've got a smaller boat which is a 16 foot muscle flat um, that's got no engine just a small lug rig and we use the tide to take us into the salt marsh so just um, very calm salt marsh explorations in that boat and as they would have used it to pick up the muscles many years ago that's what it's designed for and that's how we use it for that particular experience okay yeah that and that's a good point the boats themselves are are all part of the sort of magic i suppose maybe i can give people some idea of, of what it's like so when we went out a few weeks back now henry that was on the crab boat right yes exactly that was the medium-sized one nick that does the salt marsh and the sea Okay, so that's got um, that's got sail and a motor if needs be. But what you notice immediately as soon as you cut the engine, of course, is that there's this just glorious silence as you glide along and the sound of the water uh, and the wind uh, in the sail, and that's about it. And you find yourself sort of talking in hushed tones and, and um, you know, just starting to soak up that sort of mesmeric pull of, of the ocean. It's hard to describe, but... We um we went we decided because the weather and the wind wasn't particularly favourable on that day that um, that we might got to go out and we were quite lucky actually because the weather had been quite poor up to up to then and, and probably the day after but as I told you I'm a lucky sailor Henry so we we, uh, we got to go out for a bit and um, up the salt marshes as we said and there was just a, a few of us in the boat uh, just to keep uh, keep everything going. And of course, we had Charlie Hodgson cooking us an amazing breakfast. But uh, before we got there, we got to the bridge, which was a, a little wildfowler's bridge uh, across some, uh, some, some of the water. But by the time we'd reached there, the tide was such that uh, we couldn't actually get past it. We couldn't go around it and we couldn't go under it, as that famous kid's book says, which I can't remember what it was. Now. I used to read it to my little one. Uh, something to do with we're going on a bear hunt. Did you ever, I suppose your kids might be a bit older than mine. I don't know, Henry. Did you get involved in that one? Um, I did get involved with lots of stories. Um, I, to be honest, I can't remember that one, Nick. I think we're a similar <laughs> age. So. Yeah, yeah. something about we can't go over it, we can't go under it, we'll have to go through it. Anyway, so yeah. the um, tide was such that we just had to moor up for a little while. So we chucked out, a, chucked out the anchor and sat uh, talking quietly while the tide sort of reached its zenith and started to drop and then we could sort of squeeze ourselves under this this bridge that's used by the wildfowlers to shoot duck and geese and get to the inaccessible part of the marshes. Um, and Charlie Hodgson, as I say, the chef was there with us, the, uh, the well-known chef from, from Norfolk regions, um, a lovely chap and part of your crew. I know um, he's, a, a, he's an ex-Royal Marine and so are you, is that right? Yes, that... That's right. There's quite a nice network of sort of adventurous souls. So there's uh, Ian Finch, who's a photographer on board. He was an ex-Marine. Yeah. Charlie was as well. Um, but the nice thing is we've got that, uh, and that's really a large part of the grounding of the business, Nick, because you get a lot, of, um, a lot of skills and how to survive outdoors, how to look after people, how to be comfortable in adversity. That comes from that background. But then we had Colin, who's a surfer, so he has a very similar mentality although comes at it from a completely different direction. And the same as Zoe as well, um, who's... Zoe the Mermaid, yeah. <laughs> Zoe the Mermaid, so lives half the time in the creeks, half the time on the land. But so all of us have got this very similar love and passion for the sea and nature on the coast. And I think that's the interesting thing that I just find, and it's one of the reasons for the business, is that we get... The world is getting faster and faster, although bizarrely, of course, now as we talk, it's slowed right down. People sort of so consumed by the World Wide Web, the internet, the devices, that this is almost a way of saying to people, look, come out with us and completely step back from that. Turn your phone off and reconnect with nature, the sea, 
And I think it's that tidal zone, Nick, which is very special because it highlights uh, nature because it's static. You physically see the sea coming in, which is pulled by the moon, and it gets dragged out again. And then you've just got sandy creeks. Um, so as well as the boats and the rest of it, it was this draw to the wilderness and nature, which I, I think is important to me and hopefully to other people as well. Definitely. And I think that really came across when I was there and we sat in the boat, as I said, and it was early in the morning and, when we, and then we said to each other, just imagine, you know, at this stage, uh, it was long, it was shortly before everything came to a grinding halt, but they, we said, I remember, distinctly remember saying to you, I think, you know, imagine those guys getting on trains going into London and we're sitting here in the absolute middle of nowhere and we did not see a soul, literally. Um, and up on the hill, there were a few porkers out on the f in the morning sunshine and it was such a clear morning that I, I had my bins with me and I could see hares lolloping about on the tops of the hills uh, in the distance. And uh, while you're on, always, I always think when you're on the water and, but you're always sort of just strategically apart from the land. So you look back at the land, but you don't feel part of it anymore. It's a strange feeling. Um, but Charlie cooked up this amazing fry up there on the boat with his little stove. And we had, uh, he got out these beautiful rolls of, of Norfolk churn butter and some, uh, some black pudding and some sausages and bacon. And we had a little something to pour in our coffee. And uh, it was just brilliant, but it was quite amusing because uh, anybody who knows me, <laughs> know I'm fairly hopeless with sort of practical things. I'm, uh, I love to go and do adventurous stuff. And I've been in lots of interesting places. Uh, but I'm pretty hopeless when it comes to actually sort of making things, putting things up, working out how things work. Um, so I was in great hands to have all these Royal Marines with me. But I did notice that you were the poor chap who sort of had to jump straight over the side early and get your socks completely so and shoes completely soaked for the rest of the day. I guess that's all part of the bag, Henry, is it? <laughs> yeah, exactly, Nick. Well, if you're the skipper... You're the one responsible for sailing the boat. So if you get stuck on the sand, so when we left that bridge, Nick, as you noticed that the sea drains out really quickly from the creeks. So if you don't move quickly and you don't know that route um, almost inch by inch, you know, you will get stuck. So if you do clip a sandbank and the boat comes to a hold, then you've got to be the first one over the edge and prepare to push it off. And that's, that's part of our team spirit, really, Nick, that, um, we all do it together and take responsibility for actions. Um, we recce and prepare stuff thoroughly as well. But, you know, we also enjoy it. There's a little bit of a challenge and, it, and you just feel as if you've been out on more of an adventure um, when you've had to go over the side and push the boat a couple hundred metres down the creek as well. Yeah, absolutely. And you can tell you're the, not the sort of chaps who'd be happy pottering around the garden for too long you want to be getting on and doing things <laughs> um you've yes. given yourself a challenge and, and, and yes. obviously it keeps you fit as well well i mean it's uh, i mean often i find it quite hard to very quickly describe what we do nick and i think because people think you've got a, a boat and you go sailing that that is it but i mean in the salt marsh it's a completely different experience as you discovered so wild swimming for us is, is just as important and we love just as much um colin and zoe are in the water as we said before just as much as on top of the boat and that's the that's the magical thing about the salt marsh you get a little bit of both it's protected waters so the sailing sort of fairly calm but you can do all these other activities like the swimming uh, foraging spear fishing which i don't think we had a chance to do with you um, that's another completely sort of different skill that comes from Norfolk. And in fact, you'll have to come back again. We'll show you how to do that, Nick. Yeah, that's the uh, dodgily named butt pricking, isn't it? Yes, that's it. Uh, on our marketing material, I tend not to use that. Um, <laughs> so we For obvious to, reason. Yes. So we tend to stick to spearfishing, but then people imagine these Mediterranean waters and us swimming, <laughs> swimming underwater, which, as you could say it's not quite the same no but that, so that Nick, involves but that's what people who, who might have done it in the past or for older people would call um would call dab, dab spearing or dab fishing is it yes that's it and it's part of that same philosophy nick is that once the water drains out you get your willow spear which is, has four prongs that we make and then you walk back up the creek there may only be a few inches of water and every now and again there'll be a deeper pool and it takes some real concentration to walk slowly, 
observing, looking ahead, trying to spot the fish because they're so fast. Yeah. If you've only got one chance, so you've got a fraction of a second to get him. And if you don't, that's it, he's gone. So it's another way of connecting with the coast. Um, it's another way of switching off your mind. It's another way of clearing your mind. And I've seen, in fact, one, one set of clients from London. I mean, it's incredible seeing the transformation and just seeing how people get almost mesmerized um, by, this pro- by this process. So it has a really profound effect on people. Yeah, uh, definitely. And I, I, and you can understand it when you're on the water because water in any of its forms has a magical pull, I think. And, um, but the sea for so many people has some, holds, you know, some sort of magnetism and me included, you know, I, I've said to you before, I live sort of about as far from the sea as it's possible to get, but I love it. And I always want to go to the sea and I always want to swim in it when I do go to the sea. It's just something about it. But, um, yeah, that whole sort of mesmeric thing, it's like anything like uh, like we've said before, like fly fishing or maybe a uh, bit of shooting or or even maybe smoking a cigar. That's something that completely takes you into that moment and everything else falls away. And that, that just feels like a really healthy thing to be doing, doesn't it? Yes, yes, it is, Nick. I mean, one of the, our best trips really is when you go out for the whole day so the first four or five hours will be sailing out to a lovely remote spot on the coast, whether it's a salt marsh or the sand bank. We have a lovely cooked breakfast as the water's going down. And then we do the, the spear fishing or have a swim. And then a long walk doing foraging as well. So picking up mussels, cockles, um, some of the various plants, samphire, sea purslane as well. So that whole thing, in fact, is only a small percentage of it is the sailing. Most of it actually is all this complete range of different activities um, in nature on the coast. Well, I love the idea of of digging up clams and things. <laughs> There's something about that as well. I remember in, I got absolutely hammered by my family because we went on a holiday years ago to to Normandy and um, and we spent some time on the on the D-Day beaches and stuff. And every t- you know even in France even now at sort of at turn of tide the whole sort of town seems to decamp and, and heads to the sea with their little shrimp nets and uh, catches things, which is something, sadly, that um, in this country we just don't do anymore, you know, and we've sort of lost a lot of our appreciation for seafood and, and fish and we just don't eat enough of it and we export masses of it, which is a terrible shame. I mean, I've written lots of stories about shellfish in, in the past and been out to all lobster fishing and out with the oysters and... And, uh, and we export 70% of the nation's um, shellfish, which is just an extraordinary number, isn't it? Um, to think that incredible food that people all over the world, particular, particularly in Asia, just absolutely go mad for, and we just, nobody really wants it here. So our chroma crabs, you know, down where you are, and, and the amazing lobsters off the west of Scotland, and uh, and even the whelks. There's a huge whelk fishery, and it all goes to Korea and places like that. And it, as an aside, you know that's a, that's a great shame. But anyway, back to the French French story. Um, and I spent <laughs> one hot afternoon with a rake, and I started to, started to do some clam clam fishing and finding some cockles and. Next thing you know, I was frenziedly collecting these clams and they said, come on, it's time to go home. No, no, I didn't want to do it. It was just absolutely impulsive. I loved it so much. Anyway, I got completely sunburnt on my back from bending over and the next morning, my back, my back was not only bright red, but I also had a crick in the back. I love it. Yes. Well, that's interesting you should say that, Nick, because I, I sometimes go out with the fishermen and go into the wash. And I remember on the particular occasion we went out, I think we collected in one one tide about 10 tonnes of cockles. Wow. And then they were all, all taken into Kings Lynn, all processed, and then straight off to Spain. So, yes, I agree. I just think it's incredible that we don't eat more. And perhaps now with the virus and the impact it's having on how we live, perhaps we'll reconsider that. Perhaps we'll eat more of them. And I think the other thing as well, Nick, in Norfolk is that it's quite hard to get out to these places, to get out to the sandbanks where the cockles are, the mussels. It's not directly from the coast. You've got to go through the creeks and the salt marsh and through the islands. So it's not so good in terms of access for the majority of the people, but in terms of what we do, it makes it a real, a real adventure and a real amazing sail because you have to go through the creeks, 
then you find these beautiful isolated spots and of course there's less people there then you have them to yourself and then you can do the foraging um, and look for them so that's why Norfolk for me has got this uh, this sort of wilderness to it that you don't always get in other beaches and places. No, very true. Um, and unless you were sort of equipped with a little kayak, I suppose, that's about the only other thing that could get you up there, isn't it? And people don't tend to do that because it's quite tight and um, there's other places that, that they could go easier. And so you are, you know, you do in a way have that to yourself. But isn't it true, Henry, that, um, you know, it, those marshes change subtly as well and they quite, can be quite dangerous because of the mud and the, and the rapidly coming and going tide. So you have to walk it. At, uh, at high tide, at uh, low tide, and make sure you sort of see what's there again, don't you? Yes, I mean, that's the thing that you hit the nail on the head while people, why people don't really flood out there, because it's incredibly dangerous. The tide floods in super fast because the creeks are so narrow. narrow. So unless you really understand what time high tide is, when the, the fastest flow is, the rough depth, you know, you can get cut off and then, as people often are, they have to be rescued by the RNLI, who do a fantastic job. So you've got to know the tides, you've got to know the creeks. And on top of that as well, you've got, as you say, you've got the obstacles. So there's remains of old bridges, there's old posts, there's rusty nails sticking out of them. So you could never, or you'd never want to jump in a creek and just swim without looking at it at low tide. And you'd never want to take a boat down a creek unless you'd seen it at low tide as well. So all of the things we do, Nick, taking an incredible amount of preparation, um, and that's not one-off because the whole coast is constantly shifting. So you've got to go out on a regular basis and renew your knowledge all the time. I mean, a couple of occasions I've been away for six weeks and channels and sandbanks have shifted by 10, 20 metres. So you have to be really careful. And that's, that's, I suppose, the good thing about all of us because we're out there all the time. You're constantly refreshing and building up this knowledge. But that it makes it more of a challenge. It makes it an adventure. You have to think every time you go out. Um, you have to prepare. And it's for me, it's not the same as going out on a lake or um, a channel where you know that there's plenty of water. Uh, there's, there's this extra element where you have to apply yourself. And I guess that also make sure that every trip is absolutely different if you um literally the water or the land underneath the water you're sailing on and things in it may change on each and every occasion the wind is always slightly different uh, everything yes. about it is a variable isn't it yes i mean if you've got high pressure um over the coast then when the tide comes in it can be as much as 10 20 centimeters less water so what I do, Nick, every time we go out, we explain to clients that, you know, it is an adventure. It's not an exact science. And you may have to get over the edge and push the boat off the mud if we get stuck. And a couple of times I've been in the well boat, which is about eight tons. Um, and you only have about a 20 minute window on a dropping tide to get the, the boat off a, a mud bank. So you've got to move really quickly. So I've had all the clients, eight clients over the side, pushing on the well boat to get, get it off, stripped down. And, you know, at the time, it's a little bit of a shock. But, I mean, when they come back in, they feel as if they've been on a proper adventure, which, of course, they have. So it's Yeah, definitely. They have. And we, uh, we then had a... When we took our boat as far as we possibly could, and thankfully I wasn't required to get over the side on this occasion because there were a couple of Marines in the boat to get, the, get themselves wet. But once we did get to, as far as we could and, and, um, and we jumped out and left the boat, which, incidentally... You do, don't you? And then, you know, on the, on the next um, suitable tide, you come back and collect it. But then we had to walk across the mudflats. And again, you have to know what you're doing there. As <laughs> Although we had a real laugh because everybody slipped over and fell in the mud and it was hilarious. You have to know where you're going with that as well, don't you? Yes, you do. I mean, there's little tracks. And if you don't know the tr tracks, then you won't be able to cross on the creeks or get stuck in the mud. Um, that can be dangerous when the tide floods in, of course. Um, and then if there's been a flood tide and the marsh has got uh, wet recently, then, of course, it'd be super slippery. So it can be quite dangerous and falling over. So it's, yeah, we we never go out there and relax, Nick. And uh, as you can see, it sort of brings out this really adventurous spirit in everybody. It puts a smile on our faces. Yeah, it was 
particularly funny when we all came back <laughs> blasted in mud and you know everybody took a tumble and <laughs> I think Charlie did yeah, I think, two or three didn't he bless you I, th- I think I think when I fell over that caused quite a few laughs didn't it <laughs> it did I believe someone has that uh, incriminating video somewhere <laughs> Yeah, they did. <laughs> luckily, luckily, I did a parachute parachute roll, and I was fine. It just just goes to show that you can, you can be across the marsh, you know, for years and years, but you're still just as likely to slip over if you're not careful or you know you're not concentrating. Is there such a thing as like wet sand or wet mud? I mean, is that does that sort of thing exist? Yes, there are some spot it's really wet soft and so if you're not careful you can get stuck and then you can't pull yourself out in fact by it wasn't Thornham it's Titchwall summer before last there was a chap trying to cut across the marsh um an elderly gentleman he sort of lived close by he had a cottage so he knew the marsh pretty well and he got stuck in a particularly soft part and he couldn't get out for 24 hours um so luckily when the tide came in it wasn't uh, a high tide and somebody found him the next day. But, you know, he was lucky. And that's not unusual, Nick. And that's, that's why you have to be careful. And that's why you have to recce it. And that's why you have to know what you're doing and have the communications and the right kit with you. And that's, that's the sort of tale that you sort of forget about in today's day and age when we're sheltered from everything and people don't generally find themselves in peril. But imagine that. It's stuck for 24 hours. A poor, poor guy must have been terrified. And... And it's a very big yes. those dangers. They're still there, aren't they, for the unwary? Yes, they are, Nick. And I think, you know, with our modern society and in the UK, we don't ever really expect anything to go wrong. And we expect to be told if it's not safe. And we expect to be cordoned off or not allowed somewhere if it's not safe. And, you know, that's not the case, the, the case with the sea, um, because anybody can go out there. So people are always being caught out. But this is what I like, because it makes you confront nature and it makes you think and it makes you plan. And it makes you very humble as well, because you know that if you make a mistake, then the sea will have the last word. Um, and it's important. And it also, it makes you alive, doesn't it? You know, unless you're yes. the sort of person that likes to sit behind a desk, and, and if that's what you want to do, there's nothing wrong with that. But for a no. lot of people, life, in, you know, living it involves a lot more than that. And to take you out of your comfort zone and give you a little fright um, sometimes isn't a bad thing, is it? No. Well, exactly, Nick. And that's, that's what I enjoy. I, I love it when you've been out for a long trip and then you come back in, you safely tie the boat up and you know that you know, it's been successful and everybody's back and safe. Because every time as a skipper, you're out there, you can never switch off. So even when you stop um, having a, a coffee and sort of bacon and eggs in the morning, the sea will always be moving, it'll be dropping, it'll be rising. So if you don't keep an eye on everything, you know, your boat will get stuck or the boat could float out of the creek, get stuck on the side and roll into the creek. So there's all these hazards that unless you really know the coast, that you probably won't be aware of. So it can be exhausting when you're out and you're looking after a group of people and you're trying to relax and enjoy it and guide, but also at the back of your mind, know that you've got to be um, alert and observant all the time. Yeah, that's a good point. You find it, you find yourself very tired at the end of the day, not only because you've been in the fresh air and the sun and a bit of physical activity. Did you, do you find actually mentally you're really quite tired? Yes, I am. But, it, but it's in a good way, Nick, because you've been so present in the moment when you're out there. Uh, um, you're, you can't afford to let your mind drift to other things, um, you know, or fall asleep or anything of that nature. You've got to focus on what you're doing and all the aspects. So there's this real sense of living in the moment, which is what you, you were alluding to earlier. Um, and I enjoy that. So you come back, you are tired, but you feel as if you've done something. You feel as if you've lived. You feel as if you've uh, um, been out there into nature, you've treated it with respect and come back safely. And there's yeah, a great sense of satisfaction with that. Yeah, it's a good tired, isn't it? And just and before we forget then, so if you do like that poor gentleman get stuck in mud, what should you do? Yes. Well, I mean, first of all, before you even go out into the marsh, you should let somebody know where you are. Right. Um, what what your route is and when you expect it back so that if you don't get back at a certain time there'll be somebody aware and will be able to follow your route so it's preventative measures measures really are the best um to follow but then also you should have a little pack which is what all our skippers do we always have um wet weather gear we have warm gear we always carry a hot flask especially in the winter a little bit of food communications equipment so most of the time the phones work fine 
um, on the marsh. So with a mobile phone, you can normally call for help. But we have a VHF radio system as well. Um, and we have a few other bits and bobs. But the, the essentials of looking after yourself, so keep yourself warm, um, being able to communicate, um, will be able to get you out of most of those problems and situations. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's all about common sense and just always making sure that you don't ever take it take it for granted i suppose is the thing and you being a former military man that that's drummed into you till you're never going to forget it isn't it yes well although i suppose people think if you join the military it's about fighting i mean that's that's a part of it but 70 percent, especially in the marines is all about looking after yourself and surviving in nature whether you're up in the mountains whether you're in the desert whether you're at sea so most of it is about surviving in the wilderness uh, which is mm-hmm. what i you know absolutely loved so uh, are those skills really important we use on the norfolk coast so just tell uh, tell folks about the other bit the other sort of angles that uh, that you offer you were telling me that about the sort of which has been very popular as a corporate thing is the sort of smuggling anti-evasion bit more of an excitement spend the night out on the marsh type thing yes i suppose we come from you know come from an adventurous background so I always thought sailing is part of it, but it's not the full story. And this is amazing history in Norfolk, which is similar to Cornwall about the old smuggling operations. So in the 18th century, you would have had luggers going across to France, picking up brandy, champagne, tea, sugar, silk, and then coming back to Norfolk. And then sort of under moonlight or when nobody's about late at night, coming into the the various different creeks and stays and offloading so i always thought in terms of being a sailor and the skills required i mean incredible skill set you need to do that you know I'll point out nick that we don't don't smuggle because i think some people think <laughs> no no do no, not, but it's, it's not official real smuggling but pretend no no that that's it but it's all about that skill set nick so to come into a creek at night requires a greater deal of um skill um Agent RV is one part that we do. So meeting somebody discreetly in a, in a quiet Norfolk smugglers pub. Um, what happens if you get compromised by the customs? Um, and the good way to escape is to wild swim on an outgoing tide or ingoing tide because you blow ground level. So there's a whole sort of skill set around looking after yourself, surviving and operating. So that's quite a popular package, Nick. And I think just the fact you say smuggling draws people's attention in. Um, and also, so for that, we have a night out, so we take the large boat, we have a discreet spot, we've got a wood-burning stove, we put a nice sort of stew on of locally sourced food. Um, so it's quite an atmospheric uh, package as well. We teach, first of all, and then once we've been through the, that first phase, there's an actual operation where they've got to go out and pick up some contraband at sea and then deliver it. So it's, it's a fast-paced, exciting package. It's- yeah, that sounds amazing. Is it uh, out of all these sort of options and things you do? What which of them appeal to you the most personally? Well, I suppose there's two sides. So I love the I love the adventure of that one um, because it really draws a team in. Uh, there's some energy to it. There's some focus to it. But then there's two other aspects that are important to me as well, Nick. One is uh, social change, and another one is the environment. So we also do a we work with a homeless charity in Kings Lynn called the Perfectly Trust. And this is another part that I love. So it's taking people out that have recovered from their shocks in life as sort of getting back on their feet. And we take them out for three days and build a positive environment, um, teach them new skills, show them a beautiful part of the coast. And it's amazing what a difference it makes to people that have been caught in a rut, suddenly expose them to the beauty in the wilderness of the coast, enables them to move on. And we've had some amazing results with um, a whole stream of individuals. So that, that one I love as well for different reasons, because helping people is important. And then the other one as well, Nick, is the sailing cargo under sail. So the idea is that in our, you know, our congested modern world, with the shipping industry being responsible for the majority of the, um, the carbon emissions, this idea of using sail power to deliver cargo. Uh, so, for example, we linked up with a schooner that had sailed from Portugal with olive oil. We met her in Yarmouth, and then we sailed a ton of olive oil all the way around the coast to Wells, and then we sold it through our network. 
and we've done similar trips for breweries going from Wells to Kings Lynn um, and to Norwich as well. So we try and get involved in a variety of things that, I mean, A, we enjoy, but B, perhaps make Norfolk, you know, a slightly better place, um, you know, looking at perhaps what could be done in the future. Yeah, and that's a great idea. I mean, perfect makes perfect sense from an environmental point of view. Um, it, it, it's sort of, you know, zero carbon emission there. If all you're doing is jumping in a boat and sailing around the corner, it just makes perfect sense and it makes me wonder why we don't do more of it really is it because time is it these days people want to you know order it on amazon and get it before tea time or what yes i think there's an element of that and i think we've got so you we sort of moved away from sale because the world's moving so fast but i think we're having to reconsider it with everything that's going on and if you look at norfolk i don't think you'd have a county that's sort of better suited because you've got at least 50, if not 60% of Norfolk is the coast. And then you've got a good network of rivers. So from Yarmouth, you can get all the way up the river to Norwich, for example. So you can connect some of the major cities and towns, Norwich, Yarmouth, Wells, Kings Lynn. Um, so you've, it's amazing what you can access, how much of Norfolk you can access through the riverine and the coastal system. And I always think you've got huge amounts of money spent on pleasure craft that just sit in the various states and harbours. Um, does people love the challenge of sailing around the coast? So, you know, why why are you not connecting these two? And then also, if you look at the wind farms, Nick, the huge amount of money we spend on trying to use natural resources for uh, energy use in Norfolk, you know, why are we not looking at the same for transportation? Mm. So it's it's a way to perhaps, although we're not going to change anything in our modest boat, it's perhaps a way to make people think and challenge conventional thinking on, you know, how we do things and how we live and what skills we use. That's a brilliant idea. I mean, as you say, I never thought of it, but all those pleasure boats and the old boys and, and people who potter on them and love to get out and practice their sailing skills, why on earth aren't we saying to them, look, here's a, you know, set up a registration of sensible people who are capable enough of doing it. Um, this cargo A needs to get to site B. Would you like to take it? It will take three hours. And there's so many people who would think that would be amazing. And it would save us, surely save us fortune and do a massive amount of good and give people, yes. those are people who have time to do it, give them a reason to get out and be useful. It's a genius idea. Is there anybody doing it? Well, no, I mean, which we started, what, two years ago doing this, Nick. So we've done about um, a dozen runs along the coast of different breweries and people. So we're trying to make a change. There's a few other boats that are interested as well. There's a nice sailing barge called Juno, another one called Growler, who are very interested. And we're also looking at a larger boat because really to make it worthwhile, Nick, you need quite a large boat to carry a, a high volume. So we're looking at trying to get a larger smack um, perhaps about 45 foot so we could take more right. and then perhaps also seeing which will be one for you Nick and hopefully you join us see if we can go across to France even and perhaps for well, example you what on earth up makes you think I would like <laughs> so what, my, yeah. what on earth makes you think I'd like to go to France and pick up what was that champagne <laughs> well you picked your right man I think Henry that's yeah, I think brilliant We'll see you've got the aptitude for it from the trip out on the crab boat, Nick. So uh, <laughs> I think this is the next step. A good idea. So how would that work? Well, I think the, you'd need to find something you could perhaps take to France. Um, and of course, London for Norfolk is quite a nice stopover as well. So you could leave Norfolk um, with perhaps some of the Norfolk produce. and got some amazing things, lots of beers. Um, you've got some major breweries. You could take beer, for example, to London delivered there perhaps having an event and then you could continue to france um i haven't worked out what we could take to france yet but then i quite like the idea of bringing you know brandy um champagnes from france as they would have done in the 18th century back to norfolk in fact we could probably nick combine our smuggling package at the end so we come in discreetly up a stave rather than come straight into wells next to the sea and see if the customs can catch us or not oh what an amazing idea and so let me think, if you um, <clears throat> sail to, where would you sail to? Somewhere like Bordeaux. Could you then, in theory, get find one of the rivers that would take you into Champagne as near as possible? Yes, well, I was thinking perhaps, you know, you could go northern France, uh, right. which would be closer. So you could, you could do that, and then you could go up one of the rivers. 
Um, or you could do a longer trip and go around to Bordeaux or anywhere along the French coast. So it's for me, it's about opening up some of those perhaps traditional routes. And I think hundreds of years ago, Nick, that's how society developed by trading along the coast and boats would then start to go further. So it's about exchanging ideas, goods, and perhaps the world is coming back around to that that way of operating, that it's not just sort of massive container ships, mass-produced items. Perhaps, you know, we need to consider more locally produced items now and they're, they move sustainably more, more locally. Um, but I think it's an idea sort of worth considering and exploring, which is what we're trying to do. That's a fabulous idea. I, I could definitely think of one or two people in the champagne business that I think would be up for that, Henry. So let me, um, let me pursue that while we're all on downtime, or we can perhaps try and, um, try and get that up and running. It'd make it a great story, I and mean, we'd have some fun, wouldn't we? We're good. Well, your name's down already, Nick. So you're the first one, first crew member recruited for that. <laughs> Superb. Thank you. Um, let's talk a little then before we uh, let you crack on. What with, and I'm amazed at the quality of the line. But So what are you doing out in Afghanistan all that way away? Well, I, 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 when I left the military, Nick, I worked as a humanitarian security advisor. So a lot of the work I've done over the years in various places like Darfur and Sudan, um, Chechnya is using relationships to establish good security so that then humanitarian aid can get in so that's essentially what I'm doing in Afghanistan so trying to help help the humanitarian aid move out of Kabul to the people that need it all over the country Crumbs and that I'm presuming at the best of times that's a tricky proposition but particularly now that the Americans have decided that they're you know pulling out I'd imagine it's a very difficult time isn't it yes it is it's a very difficult time for the afghan government um you know the taliban are very strong they're emboldened by what has happened so yes um we're just reassessing now how the how the situation develops because the security dynamics are certainly certainly changing um but uh, but a lot of this i learned in places like sudan uh, sort of boating operations funny old thing in the Sud of South Sudan, which is quite similar to Norfolk, Nick. Oh, um, that's where some of my boating experience comes from. But uh, examples there where you're negotiating with elements of the uh, the Nur, the Dinka tribes, to make sure that they make sure that the security is good on a river before the, the food convoys move down, which uh, isn't too far away from how we operate in Norfolk sometimes, <laughs> although we've had no ambushes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, presumably... It- it's a case of you need to meet the right people and look them in the eye and get them to agree that they won't disturb you. And, and that generally is the only thing you can rely on. Is that how it works? Yes. Um, and that's essentially how it works, Nick. Um, in Afghanistan, there's a great saying, three cups of tea. So it's about beating, building relationships and trust. So the first one is to meet somebody. The second cup of tea is to get to know them a little bit better. Better, and only after the third cup of tea do you start talking business. So this idea of face-to-face um, contact, building relationships, so you can trust each other, and then you can either do business or you know whatever you're whatever you're interested in. Um, and and it's been the same wherever I go, Nick. Whether it's uh, you know Russia, Chechnya, whether it's Somalia, um, Sudan, or indeed back in Norfolk, it's the same thing. If you if you want to do business or get something done, you've got to meet people. You've got to build a relationship so there's some trust. Wow. I mean, do you not feel, I guess there's a, like um, protocols you go through and you get through it, but do you feel yourself, you know, um, at risk or do you feel sometimes that intimidated or how does it work? I mean, going into these chaps, you know, parlour, as it were, who are basically responsible for the yay or nay as to what's going to happen around there, that, isn't that... that Takes some doing, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Um, you know, a good example, Nick, was um, when I was in the Sud of South Sudan, I had to meet one of the militias. And uh, we arrived at a particular meeting point, which is on the bank of the river. And you could hear, hear them coming about a mile off. They were in their tribal, um, tribal rig. Uh, they were stamping on the, on the ground, doing their, their dance as they came along. So this incredible sound of drums as they got closer and closer. Um, and the the militia commander was with them in his sort of best rig and presented in his um, tribal elders 
uh, uniform. So yes, on the surface of it, you're sitting there and you've got this militia slowly getting closer and closer with the sound getting um, louder and louder. Um, but behind that, there's an incredible amount of preparation that goes into that. You spend a lot of time really analysing who's who, um, who they're connected with, their approach to humanitarians, what's happened there before. Um, you set up meetings with interlocutors that can then allow perhaps from a distance to talk and understand. So by the time you get there, you pretty much know that it's going to be okay because you've done your research. Um, so yes, you wouldn't ever go straight into one of these areas and expect to do business. There's a lot, lot that goes on beforehand. Yes, that makes perfect sense. I can, I can understand that. But it's, well, it's quite something, and I can now fully comprehend why you want to get back to Norfolk and sit on the salt marsh for a bit to <laughs> back down to earth. Yes, but it's funny, Nick, if you're sailing into one of the stays or the creeks on Norfolk and uh, you haven't worked out where you're going to moor, you haven't worked out who the local harbour master is, you haven't worked out who's, who's operating there. So if you just sail in, um, put your boat anywhere, tie it up on any old creek, you'll, okay, you won't get shot, but you'll, you'll be into conflict with the local people. So there's still some elements of you know, what, I, what I've been doing before that are still very applicable to Norfolk. Um, and a lot of these harbours and stays in Norfolk are just so beautiful, so well protected. Um, and the people so, feel so responsible for looking after them, which is a great and a very positive thing, that you can't just force your way in as an outsider and expect to put your boat anywhere and do what you want. Um, and it's a, it's, a, you know, it's a good thing to understand, I think. Yes, it's true. I mean, so what would happen in that instance if you, 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 to pull, you wanted or needed to stop somewhere? Are you supposed to make your inquiries as to who the harbour master is and make presentations or how does it work? Well, that's the interesting thing, Nick. If you go to some of the larger places like Wells, Kings Lynn's harbour master, it's organised, there's finance, there's proper pontoons and you've got a proper process. Um, but if you go into to other creeks and stays, there's not that process and it'll be run by a local couple of individuals, which I won't give any examples, but it will not be on a formal basis. So it will only be by you working out who really is running that creek. Uh, not that anybody owns them, but there's people that have perhaps own uh, stays and sort of wooden landing sites. So you've got to know those people and just work out how it works. And that's another thing I like. That's how, what I like about the place, Nick. It's not all commercialised. It's run as it would have been for, you know, the last, the last hundreds of years. <clears throat> so if they don't like the cut of your jib, as it were, then they basically tell you to bugger off. Yes, well, you know, you'll find your boat um, mysteriously floats out to sea during the night or something. <laughs> uh, yes, there's still that wild element to the coast that I love. Yeah, I never really thought of that. And so tell us what, um, you're stuck there for a while because for obvious reasons, we're still talking now and then. we're still in lockdown um, and you've been there for a few weeks. What are your conditions like where you are, Henry? You, you've got stuff to keep you going? Yes, to be honest, Nick, it's, I'm quite lucky, really. It's a large international compound, so we've got a nice garden. <clears throat> there's a nice gym. Um, there's plenty of food. So of all places to be locked, locked down, to be honest, we're okay. And, you know, I've got family stuck in sort of different parts of the world who might be in flats with no garden, perhaps no balcony, certainly no gym. And, you know, it's, it's harder for them. So to be honest, it, it's okay, Nick. Um, the compound's set up for the worst case scenario, which is a, a major high profile attack from a, um, a non-government armed group. So they're really robust. We've got armed guards for the security and within we've got really good facilities as well. So I, I can't complain. I'm very lucky, very fortunate. Oh, that's good to hear. Can you, can you get a beer or is that not allowed? Uh, no, you can. Yes. Um, you can get a beer, relax a bit. I mean, we don't have a bar, but there's places where you can, but I mean, I tend not to drink out in these places so much and save it from when I'm back. Um, sailing brandy or champagne across from France into Norfolk. <laughs> Very sensible. Well, listen, <laughs> it's an absolute pleasure to talk to you. I mean, we, and I love listening to your stories, which I know we've only sort of, touched the tip of the iceberg as it were but perhaps uh, perhaps we could chat again sometime um thank you very much for your time stay safe keep your head down and um and i'll in the meantime we'll make some progress on the champagne front and uh, 
and we'll resurrect that and we can do a pod and uh, and some audio from that when it happens lovely nick well thank you for the interest and thank you for bringing out these stories without a good storyteller like you then you know these stories never heard are they so um your interest is appreciated and your name's down for that trip so um i'll give you the dates when we're going wonderful thanks that's kind of you You take care of yourself yes thanks nick and you all best henry thanks nick Bye. bye